0: Well, good morning. good morning. My name is Buck Anderson. I'm the pastor of Leadership Development at Grace. I'm glad to be with you again. We're going to continue our time in Isaiah. We're going to take a look at the 54th chapter. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, I want to set the stage for us a bit. For this is a chapter that is really quite beautiful and some sections of it are really quite amazing as far as its succinctness and its loveliness as far as uh, the poetry found in it. It is a a chapter that wonderfully sort of shrinks all of Isaiah into one little chapter. Uh, I was thinking about Isaiah today and realized, you know, that's a pretty big book. And uh, we're going to have to uh, see where Isaiah 54 sort of fits in, almost like a piece in the puzzle. The the image that came to my head was like a a director. God is like a director. And, And in the book of Isaiah, he gives us the wide spectrum that's all 66 books or uh, chapters within the book. And then how do we focus in on this little chapter? So we're going to, like a lens of a camera, move from wide to narrow. Going to move from the widest part of the book, all the, all sections of the book, to the two main sections of the book, and then portion of the last section. We're going to end up focusing just on one or two verses within Isaiah 54. And then look at just one or two words that I hope will make a difference in your life as they have in mine. Isaiah 54 is a call to the brokenhearted, a call to those that might feel separated and estranged from God as He reminds us of His loyalty. And so we're going to take a look and be refreshed at not only this aspect of God, His loyalty, but also His compassion. We're going to take a look at those two ideas. Uh, the, the book is a pretty easy book, actually, to understand. Isaiah at one level, although 66 chapters is only two main sections. The first part's not all that pleasant. It's very much found again in Isaiah 54. The first part of the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, is referred to as the book of judgment. What God is doing is he's really showing his faithfulness, his loyalty, to call out sinful Judah at this time. For their unfaithfulness. He's calling out the kings and he's calling out the people who have not lived appropriately. And that was part of God's arrangement with them. They lived under the Mosaic covenant and their obedience was to be blessed. Their disobedience was to be disciplined. And God is being a faithful covenanteer in the first part of the book to bring out their unfaithfulness and to issue discipline. In fact, at the end of Isaiah 39, at the end of the first half of the book of Isaiah... There's sort of this haunting prophecy that he issues in verses 6 and 7. He says, behold, days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried away to Babylon. Your sons will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. What's amazing is this prophecy is not fulfilled for about 120 years after he issues it. But so set was God in his discipline of them, and so grievous was their sin, it was going to be inescapable. That will be Jeremiah's argument in the next generation as well, that this discipline will come your way. But I want you to notice as we unfold here today how God will view that discipline and how he'll overcome it with this idea of loving kindness and this idea of compassion. So he deals with the nation's faithfulness in the first part of the book... The second part of the book is known as the book of comfort. So Isaiah can quickly and easily be remembered. God is faithful to judge us and deal with us for our unfaithfulness. But he also woos us back to himself. He calls the brokenhearted through his act of kindness so that he might comfort us. So in this last section he calls the nation back to hope and redemption. And we see the beautiful entry. First found in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1. Comfort. Oh, comfort my people. The tenor changes. Immediately the mood is that like of a, of a salve, of a, of a wound being healed up. And this section is where our chapter, of course, is found is very much in keeping with that. The book of comfort is divided into three main sections. And we're going to be in the middle section in chapter 54. And it's all going to center around Messiah. His promise, his purpose, and his peace. And so we're going to see that the promise and purpose of Messiah's peace will be in the first eight chapters of the book of comfort. And then our section is going to focus solely upon the Prince of Peace, the one who ushers in this, not only the peace that we can have with God, but also a kingdom plan of peace, Messiah's kingdom rule on earth described in the latter part of the book of Isaiah, even more closely moving the camera lens. And our Section today in chapters 49 through 57, we'll look at each chapter quickly as we see our chapter right in the middle of it. Messiah will bring light and restoration. Light to the Gentiles, restoration to Israel at the appointed time. In chapter 50, he will, Israel will be called to put away her sin. But the servant of the Lord, referred as Messiah there in chapter 50, will be obedient and his suffering will comfort all those who are weary and separated from God. Israel, the promised nation, should therefore look to God in faith and re- be prepared to return to the land because the people receiving this letter are in the Babylonian captivity. And they're hearing this for the first time and they're wondering is there a future for us? Is there hope for us? Will God forget us in this foreign place or does He have a place? and a future for us. And as a result, Israel is called to wake up because dominion will be yours again. The the yoke of slavery will go away one day and you will be returned to your land so that you can have dominion again. And then the suffering servant we saw in chapters 52 and 53, probably the most beautiful section of scripture in the whole word of God. Certainly some of the most powerful prophecies about Christ where he's prophesied to die for all of our sin In Isaiah 52 and 53. That's just one chapter before where we are today. So the blessings of redemption brought about by Messiah in chapter 52 and 53 are now dispensed to the people of God in chapter 54. See the cause and effect relationship. And as this section continues as a result of Messiah's redemption and the blessings that can be dispensed, grace is now available to all based on what Messiah has procured. And finally, he reminds his enemies that there will be none who are wicked, none who are corrupt idolaters that will be a part of the things of God in the future. And so he calls them, although living in a land filled with corruption, although living in a land filled with idolatry, remain true to the Lord. Your day is coming. Although for a moment it seems that discipline seems overwhelming and your heart is broken to the point of ill repair, he says, there's a day coming in which your restoration will be made whole. That's what Isaiah 54 is all about. It's about the future blessings of the people of God. It's about a new perspective. It's about putting on a different set of glasses so that we might understand life through God's perspective. In chapter 54, there's two main sections. The first 10 verses where we're going to spend most of our time refer to uh, the Lord assuring his people of their restoration and renewal. Think about throughout the word of God, God coming on the scene that seems desperate and assuring people of their future and their hope. Even if it was brought about by their own sin or the sin of others, we can often get caught up in our circumstances and fail to see the life the way God sees it a perspective that is from above. And finally, in verses 11 through 17 in chapter 54, the Lord will assure his people of their prosperity, their return to the land and their security within that land. So as, a, as this passage is going to unfold, I want you to notice as we read now the first three verses of Isaiah 54, his promise that they will be returning to, uh, in dominion. But I want you to notice The imagery that he's going to set forth in chapter 54, verses 1, 2, and 3. For he's going to tell the bad news first and then the good news. So notice in 54, 1 through 3, he's going to say, speak for joy. But notice to whom he is speaking. Speak for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one, that is the barren one, will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Spare not, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your pegs, that is your tent pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations, and they will resettle the desolate cities. You see, the barren one is Judah, Jerusalem, prophesied to be in exile. She's like a woman who, although she has a husband, is estranged from him and has no children from him. Other women are having children, and she is seen as one in reproach, one who is bereaved because of her predicament. That is Israel in her unfaithfulness. Judah in her sin is referred to as a barren one. But what did he say to the barren one? Shout for joy because there's a day coming in which your children will be more numerous than the married ladies. The barren woman imagery seen in Isaiah 54, 1 through 3 is really quite powerful and a theme that we see throughout the word of God. The, The barren woman is now allowed to have children. That's why she can shout for joy. And we've seen that image before, whether it's Hannah in 1 Samuel or Elizabeth in Luke. The barren woman takes on the imagery of of God's heavy hand upon them, but just for a moment, and then released for a time of joy and reconciliation and restoration. Under the imagery of a barren woman who has now been allowed to have children, Mother Jerusalem, or Judah here, is told that she will have many children who will then multiply and reestablish dominion in the land. The imagery is that of dominion in the first three verses, and then really the core of chapter 54 is introduced. Within these six or seven verses we really see this idea that the restoration will be not only in peace, but also in safety. And it's some of the most beautiful language in all the Old Testament. There are two poems within this section that scholars have marveled at for years for their simplicity and And their beauty. And I want to show you these. But first let's just look at the passage at large. He's told the barren woman to shout for joy for you will have lots of children. You will return now in peace and safety. Notice how he makes that point. Fear not for you will not be put to shame. Neither feel humiliated. You will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who was is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says the Lord. For a brief moment, I forsook you, God says, but with great compassion. I will gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Some wonderful sections in here. And finally, he's going to end with reminding his audience that he is very familiar with covenants. And he has been in the covenant business for quite a while, even back to the days of Noah. Notice as he says in verses 9 and 10, For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore to the, that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Beautiful kind of picture of the whole book of Isaiah in verses 4 through 10 of chapter 54. The book of judgment, the book of comfort. The book that describes a period of time where they were unfaithful and disciplined as a result. The imagery of the barren wife. And now the wife being replete with children so that they come back and establish dominion in the land. Because God is now bringing forth his compassion and his loving kindness. There are two exhortations in verse four that I I found interesting and wanted to draw your attention to. Like Jesus is doing all the time, God through Isaiah is saying, fear not. I think God often in these moments in our lives in which we're, we're desperate for a word from him, he comes on the scene and I think he's so awesome and certainly that was the case with the Lord. His first words were often, it's okay, fear not. Don't be so fearful of me you don't have have the ability to listen to me. Fear not. Those days of trouble are behind you. And then he says, you don't need to feel humiliated anymore. And he tells us why. And he gives us three reasons why they need to not fear not and not feel humiliated. You will not be disgraced, he says, for I am your husband and I am now with you. You will not you will you will forget the shame of your youth for I am your husband and I am now with you. And you will forget the reproach of your widowhood for I am your husband and I am now with you. There was a time and he's going to describe it as a brief moment in which his discipline made it appear as if they were widowed, as if they were bereaved of children, as if he had withdrawn his love from them. But now the husband their maker has returned. And they need not fear. They need not feel humiliated. Now these promises are based on a relationship that exists between the nation and God and described in verse 5. Verse 5 is a simple yet beautiful little poem. It has uh, parallelism. It has meter or beat we would say. Uh, and, it, and it is expressly written to the broken hearted. There is no way that in a room of this size with this many people in it that there will not be folks who are struggling, who are feeling estranged from God or someone in their life, who are feeling that their heart is rendering in half and there is no hope for them. The Lord is in the business of dealing with the brokenhearted, And this verse, particularly verse 5, is one of the most beautiful uh, ways in which he comforts those that are feeling such. And notice uh, the imagery that he's going to employ in verse 5, for your husband is your maker, the Lord of armies is his name, the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he shall be called. I've arranged the order a bit to capture the original language a little bit more and you can see the pattern of the poem, can you not? You can see the parallel between uh, the ending of uh, the idea of his. this is his name or his reputation here and thus that is he shall be called. He's referred to as now not, uh, as we've seen before, we had a barren woman who was bereaved of a husband and now a husband. But it's God who's showing up on the scene as their husband. For your husband is your maker. The Lord of armies is his name. The Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer. The God of all the earth, he shall be called. A couple of interesting words in here. Of all the words he could have used, notice the first one he uses to describe himself as their maker. Takes him back to Genesis. Creation. I was there at the beginning, he's telling you. Telling him, I'm not just any kind of husband. I am your creator, individually as well as nationally. I am your maker. I am the Lord of armies. In Hebrew, Yahweh Sabaoth. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same. Yet he will win the battle we sing about as Martin Luther wrote that song. We see that not only is the Lord of armies his name, but he is also distinct and holy, separate from any other one. And he is your Redeemer. Not only is he your husband, my husband, he is our Redeemer. The same word used here to describe Boaz in the book of Ruth. The kinsman Redeemer, the one who is related to you, who could come And claim you. That is who is calling us back into relationship with him, the God of the whole earth, he shall be called. Beautiful little verse, verse 5, that reminds us of those truths. I love the way one of my old Hebrew prophets put it. Alan Ross wrote, The theme of creation is brought forward here again with the phrase, Your Maker. That is the one who brought Israel forth into existence. But now he is compared to a husband and Not just any husband. This particular husband is described as the sovereign creator, the Lord of armies, the Holy One of Israel, the Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. And people related by covenant to such a one as that did not fear anyone except God himself. People estranged and broken because of life situation, perhaps their own faults, the faults of others, can feel called back and made whole by the simplicity of Isaiah 54, verse 5. For your husband is your maker. The beauty of that is, is continues now in verses 7 and 8, as we see now this speech from the Lord to assure Israel of her future peace. And again, it's poetry. Set with meter, set with parallelisms. A little bit more complex, but nonetheless... We introduce how God views things. Notice his perspective on punishment in in Isaiah 54, 7 and 8. It is the speech of the Lord to assure Israel of her future peace. Wherein he says, for a brief moment, I have forsaken you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you. We're seeing the introduction of a couple of words that I've underlined there. Loving kindness and compassion. That will be the next tightening of our lens. But notice how God views time a little different than we do sometimes. In fact, the entire Babylonian captivity, a 70-year captivity that he's amazingly prophesying here in Isaiah that will not come to fruition probably 110, 120 years from this time, is seen as a brief moment. From his perspective, wherein we see that his anger was against them for a while, for a moment. But notice how it's overcome. It's overcome by his loving kindness and his compassion. That is what God uses to restore those that had walked away from him. And ever the faithful covenant here, God comes after the sinner. As you see it in the garden in Genesis 4. Here in Isaiah 54. And in College Station today. That's the business that God is in. He loves to have loyal relationships with us. And even when we are disloyal. He will call us back into relationship. He will allow his anger. His face to hide for just a moment but overwhelmingly call us back through compassion and loving kindness. And we see these two key words that we're now going to focus upon uh, as this passage unfolds because they're really quite beautiful. Notice again here in verses 9 and 10, God is reminding Judah at that time of his relationship with them. And it is a covenant relationship that he has with them, just like he has with us. And he reminds Judah that I've been having covenants with people for quite a while now. And he's going to quote the Noahic covenant, a covenant he made with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, in which he said, no more destruction of the earth by water. And the rainbow becomes a sign of that covenant. Notice how God recalls that covenant as he makes this new one with the people in Isaiah. For this is like the days of Noah to me. Kind of, I've been there before. When I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again, so I have sworn to you that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake temporary things, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace, catch it? My covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And so we see... As he cites the Noahic covenant and reminds them that there's another covenant coming. Not like the covenant that they're under, the Mosaic covenant. The covenant of peace is a reference to the new covenant. The covenant that we enjoy with God. Jesus in the upper room inaugurated the the new covenant for us and says this is the cup of the new covenant. When we take communion we are reminding ourselves and God that we are participants in the new covenant. And if we're not members of that new covenant, he calls us to become covenanteers with him. Wherein our sins are forgiven, the spirit placed inside of us, and we can have relationship with God that way. And so he cites the fact that he has been in covenants before with people. There's one in the past, the Noahic covenant. There's one coming in the future. Isaiah, I mean, Jeremiah in the next generation and Ezekiel in the next generation will describe the new covenant more in more detail. But nonetheless, we're starting to see some ingredients that keep showing up when God makes deals. When God forms arrangements with people, it seems that these two words show up time and time again. So as we tighten the lens just a bit more, let's take a look at the idea of loving kindness and compassion from the idea of the Old Testament and what the Scripture has to say about that. Loving kindness... Oh, there's a church word, right? I mean, you know, you don't say that word too much at the office. We don't say that word, word much at my office. It's just, it's not a word that comes up much. It's a combo word, obviously. But what does it mean? It comes from a, a, a Hebrew word. It's pronounced hesed. It occurs a lot in the Old Testament. It's sort of subsumed into the idea of faithfulness in the Old, in the New Testament, But while we're still learning about God in the Old Testament, he wants us to see time and time again this term that describes a characteristic within God of how he views relationships. And in particular, how he remains loyal to relationships. This is the essence of that. It is a relational term found only in terms of deals, arrangements, friendships, whether that friendship between two people or between God and man, chesed throughout the Old Testament is this idea of loyalty. It is this idea of stick-to-itiveness. I call it the glue of God. It's that bind that holds a deal together. But it's not a willful or a harsh determining Faithfulness is rather I want to be loyal and I want to be kind to you within that bond of covenant, within that bond of relationship, thus the idea of loving and kind. You see, loving biblically is the idea of a choice. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. We've moved them to terms of emotion. Biblically, they're terms of choice. I choose you. I don't choose you. I choose to love God. Therefore, I will be kind to him. God chooses to love me. And within that relationship, he is promising through this term chesed that I will be not only loyal, I will remain true. Even though the mountains may shake and the, and the trees move, I will remain loyal. But within that loyalty, I will demonstrate kindness to you. Thus, the idea of loving kindness. It's a beautiful term found throughout the Old Testament. It's really this idea of a loyal demonstration of kindness and goodness to those within, with whom we are in relationship. It's not just loyalty, although that's the key component. It's also the dispensing of goodness and kindness. Jonathan and David had a Hesed relationship. You see, Hesed exists not only between man and God, but between human beings. At this point in, in David's career, he's been elected president, if you will, but he's not taken office. Saul is still the king. Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan and David are now friends. And David has been used to going to Saul's house to have dinner with Saul and David. In fact, right before this chapter, here in chapter 20, uh, he's at having dinner with Saul, but Saul had been hearing of David's increased fame and was becoming jealous. And so Saul, not a very good host at that particular dinner party, picked up a spear and threw it at David. David, being a rather smart fellow, said, I think I'll excuse myself. And he moved out to the field where he had this conversation with Jonathan. For they had prearranged that if things go bad... Let's have one last meeting. And they cut a deal, we would say. They made a bond. They formed a relationship. And they called on the glue of God to seal it. The Hesed of Yahweh was called into that bond wherein their two houses were joined. Not only in their lifetime, but we're going to see the effect of that after Jonathan's death here in just a moment. Jonathan will say to David out in that field, the Lord be witness... You ever been a witness to a contract or had to go to a notary? You need someone who is kind of known, has a reputation of being a good observer and tells the truth. You need a witness who can say, yes, I saw that that happened. Usually we'll call the likes of you and me to such an agreement. David and Jonathan call God himself. Hey, God, witness this. Look at the deal that we're making. So serious were they about the deal. They call the Lord to be their witness And he says, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? It's a negative question. Will you be so true to me that we will help each other stay alive? And we will use the very loving kindness of God and bring that into the pack that we are forming between ourselves, between Jonathan and Davis. And he says, you shall not cut off your hesed from my house forever. So Jonathan made a covenant. Notice how Hesed shows up in covenant context. He made a covenant with the house of David. For David was to become king. And one of the things that happens when you become king is there's some vestige of the previous house that are still there. You might remember your English history, your French history. Often when a new king or queen came in, they they would dispense with the members of the previous house and many times kill them. The same thing happens in the book of Kings where even Hebrew kings and their their wives and children would be killed by the next king who'd now come in so that there would be no intrigue, no, no slipping in some poison into the drink or poisoning of the food. It's an opportunity to remove everybody. And so caught in the middle of this is going to be a young man by the name of Methibosheth, Jonathan's son. Saul is now dead. Jonathan is dead. The new house has shown up. The old administration is out. The new one has come in. And Mephibosheth, well knowing the history of his people to remove kings improperly, has now come upon the scene and he is seen as one who is being introduced. Yet David is being the one who is faithful. Notice what the scripture says about David. David said, is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God for Jonathan's sake. Because the deal I made with Jonathan, I want to bless all those that are in his house. And those that were part of the household said, Mephibosheth, he's here. But remember, he's crippled in both feet. Mephibosheth is the perfect picture of vulnerability. He's a new king. He's part of the old house. Saul, the guy who threw a spear at David, is his grandfather. Jonathan, his dad, is dead. A new house has come on the scene. It might be understandable as other nations have killed their previous regimes. And he's this utter picture of vulnerability and that he's crippled. Yet David is seen as utterly faithful and practicing this idea of loving kindness. Do not fear, he says to Mephibosheth, for I will surely show chesed, translated kindness to you here. And I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather that Saul had personally And then did you catch it at the end? And you shall eat at my table regularly. Could have been the exact table from which David was dispensed so unceremoniously years before by grandfather Saul. Notice how loving kindness changes people and how it can affect other people. Methibosheth is now the recipient of the kindness shown to David or sworn between David and Jonathan. God at times will call us out and check us out. Or how are we doing with our hesed? How are we doing with our loyalty to him? In this case, Israel, Judah, in this case, is found wanting in their loyalty. It starts off sort of nicely. He sort of fakes you out for a moment. In Isaiah 40, he says, a voice says, call out. And Isaiah says, what shall I call out? And then this is the message that Isaiah is given to call out. He says, Isaiah, I want you to go out and say, all flesh is grass and all its loveliness. been translated over 19 different ways in, the, in English Bibles. This is translated lov- uh, loveliness here. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Isn't that a nice image? We're coming into the, to the spring. The blue bonnets are going to come out. The Indian paintbrushes. People are going to get over here on Highway 6 and just stop their cars right in the middle of the freeway and go have their kids take pictures and all the blue bonnets and stuff. because the flowers come out? Where are those flowers about 4.30 in the afternoon on August the 19th? Long gone. See, the heat of the day has caused them to wither away. And that's the image. You sort of see this picturesque image and then he sort of turns the table on us and he says, You're Hesed." My hesed, our faithfulness is like that flower, shows up for a while, looks pretty good for a moment, and then withers under the heat of the day. And he's going to contrast what his faithfulness is like. All grass is flesh and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, demonstrating how powerful his was. Between God and people, we now see what God is like. He is a God who does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. Two words in English there. It's the Hebrew hesed. He delights in remaining loyal and kind to those with whom he is in relationship. He will again have compassion on us. Notice now the entry of that word. He will give truth to Jacob, referring back to the the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And unchanging love to Abraham, which you did swear to our forefathers in the days of old. God is a covenant-making God. And he loves to be loyal within those covenants. And he calls us to a similar loyalty. But often seen as as a sidekick, sort of, to Hesed is this term compassion. It's not just the loyalty... It's not just the kindness but in passage after passage we see this rather interesting word compassion. It's the Hebrew word rachamim which is actually the plural of the word racham. The word racham in Hebrew is the normal word for the woman's womb, the place from which babies come. When they put a plural on it, it could mean more than one womb and it would almost always mean that in our language. But they also have a way in which the plural... Can, can identify that which is intensive about that womb. So thus, rakamim, the plural of rakam, is this idea of the intense expression of the womb. Now, they think differently than we. We have to kind of see how they, they conceptualize things. And what really is behind this word rakamim, translated compassion, is this tender mercy, this compassion, watch it now, felt here in our womb, for those that came from our womb. Now you mamas will know this better than all of us. That tender care where you feel that tender care here is also where the one for whom you feel the care came. Now men can have wombs too in the scripture. The Bible says that Joseph's womb grew warm when he saw his brothers. He, his stomach kind of turned over. He, he felt it in his gut. Cultures will either think in their, their heads, their hearts, or in their guts. We might say, I just had a gut feeling about this. Or we might see a situation on TV of, of, of desperation, a starving situation, the recent tsunamis, and you just go, oh, it doesn't hurt here. It doesn't hurt here. It hurts here. I know there's doctors in the house that would say, it's really your central nervous system and all that. That's not how they think. <laughs> it hurts, man. It hurts here, and I feel tender here for those things that are tender to me. So they're marrying those two ideas and that's why compassion shows up a bunch. Not only is God loyal to the relationship that he has with us and he wants to dispense kindness but what we learn from the book of judgment that we can go astray and he calls us back tenderly, loyally and now kindly to uh, into restored relationship with Him. Notice in Psalm one hundred three, David will use the word "Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits." And he lists four: one who pardons your iniquities, heals your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you like a king. We've been crowned with God's loving kindness and His compassion. We can wear them; they're our portion. We can count on them at the end of the fall of Jerusalem Jeremiah who wrote lamentations one generation after Isaiah actually Jeremiah saw what Isaiah prophesied Jeremiah saw the destruction of his land he saw the Babylonians encircle Jerusalem he saw them build a siege wall a ramp that's how you overcame a fort he saw them cut off food supplies and tried to pollute the water supplies he saw his fellow countrymen die he saw what Deuteronomy prophesied that cannibalism would become a part of what they would have to endure. Imagine the horrific things that he saw as his nation fell. Imagine what we would feel like if we saw Washington, D.C. fall. Imagine that moment when we saw the towers fall and, and how we ached and now kick it up a thousandfold. Where we're now being run over by a foreign country and they Soldiers are now watching us and telling us what to do, calling them back, calling us back as slaves to their own land. That's what Jeremiah was witnessing. That's what he saw. What did he think, though? That's what I want us to think about. What was going on in his mind? Did he just miss and say, This is not happening? No, he held the reality of the sting of death in one hand, but also in his mind, he thought about God. Old theologians will say, the most important thing you ever think about is what you think about when you think about God. When under the pressure, the extreme wine press, if you will, of that day, look at what came out of Jeremiah's mind. Notice as he says in Lamentations 3, surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. I know what's happening. I know how desperate the situation is. I'm humbled by it. But I recall to my mind, and that's what gave him hope. Therefore, I have hope. What did he recall? Of all the things that Jeremiah knew, of all the things he could have experienced, all the things he could have remembered, look at what he remembered. This is what I recall to my mind, and as a result, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness, his hesed indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We've got choruses and hymns that come from this powerful section in Lamentation. But at the forefront was his recollection of God's loving kindness and his compassion. Notice what we see again in Isaiah 54 verse 10. The mountains may be removed, the hills may shake, but my loving kindness, God says, will not be removed from you. My covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Just like we saw in Psalm 103 lamentations 3 it is our portion as well to be recipients as God's uh, covenant tears of his hesed of his compassion at the end of uh, isaiah 54 he powerfully assures his people of their future prosperity and security if you're in an exile and have no hope for future you need words of power you need words of powerful assurance and that's what God does here. Notice how He, in the 17th verse, so powerfully kind of sets forth, like an attorney, His closing argument and summation. You've seen the verse used elsewhere, but this is its original context. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. I love that phrase. This is the heritage. Of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me. God says, So sure is your return that this powerful Lord Sabbath oath will make certain that there, there will be no weapon that will undo this agreement that is being set here today. My loyalty, my kindness, my compassion, or yours. Nothing can prevent that. That's how God overcomes the brokenhearted. That's how he calls back into relationship those of us that might be estranged from him, that might be separated from him because of not only our own participation in sin, but perhaps the sins of others and how it's impacted us. As we've seen in Isaiah, and we talk about now in closing, the Bible is upfront about saying that sin is a part of life and it leaves a sting. It does. There's no way around it. If I was writing the Bible, I'd leave some parts out. The Scripture just doesn't. It reminds us of the harsh reality of life and also the loveliness of God as He overcomes the depths in which our sins can take us. The sting of sin is real, but notice how He overcomes through loving kindness and compassion. It's like salving a wound, binding a wound. Paul writes in the book of Romans that it is the kindness of the Lord that leads men to repentance. We often think of his judgment and discipline and that is a tool that he can use. But it seems that moreover, those are just for a moment. What he leaves us with is his kindness, his compassion, his tender womb love for those that came from his own womb. And God is in the business of not only being loyal but also restoring those that are brokenhearted. Whether it it be Judah in the book of Isaiah or us here today. There are us that might be uh, feeling uh, broken as a result of situations that have happened in our life, take encouragement from the Word of God that God is in the business of remaining loyal and true to us and yet dispensing kindness and compassion to us as well. For He is loyal, He is kind and compassionate. And He, if you have not forgotten, is an excellent partner with whom to, end to be a deal. The covenant nature of God I think is one of the strongest characteristics he have. He loves to be in deals. He loves to remain true to those arrangements. And he loves to dispense that loyalty and kindness to us. And draw us back to himself. Through his kind and compassionate way. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, thank you so much for the privilege to have thought about these things. To be uh, encouraged from the word of God. In, in fact, that our hearts are made strong. That we might be infused with courage to look at life the way it really is. To recognize that the sting of sin is real. And that our own participation in it may have caused your discipline to visit us for a moment. But help us see life through your perspective. That you in fact will overcome that momentary discipline with a time of restoration. A time of renewed loyalty. a, A time of compassionate repentance. Help us Lord to to be men and women who, who flee back to you and want to be close to you and receive your care. Father, in this room, there, there may be some that, some that have not entered into relationship with you at any kind. And what we're clearly made known is that you invite all, whether you be of whatever past, of whatever action, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So whatever our past might be, we might find forgiveness in Jesus Messiah, the one who came and died for our sins, rose from the dead. And by believing in the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead, we may enter into a covenant with you that will never be broken. Thank you, Lord, for that privilege. And for those of us that have entered already into that covenant, but perhaps have become estranged from you, have separated from you, although you never leave us, we might be prone to wander. Draw us back, Lord. Draw us back, yes, with uh, the sobriety and the reality that our sin might bring forth discipline. But moreover, also woo us back, Lord, with the ever presence of compassion and kindness. Thank you for being so loyal to us and strong in that loyalty. Help us be strong and loyal to you and one another. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. We will continue next week in, in Isaiah. But I hope you'll think about Isaiah 54 a little bit more this week and have a wonderful time this week. See ya.